This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. So with attention, with being centered, we move from being reactive to a place where we can be with an emotion without either automatically pushing it away or automatically getting lost in it. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi there, this is Aurora Leonard. I'm the Associate Director of The Living Dying Project, and I wanted to tell you about Dale's new online course entitled A Practical Guide to Freedom, The Stages of Awakening. It's the first self-paced online course he's offered since Healing at the Edge, which was designed for those who wanted to be with the dying. Um, Most of you may know this course, but now this new self-paced course is for those who are interested in conscious living and the spiritual path toward freedom. So if you've ever been overwhelmed by the plethora of spiritual teachings out there, he provides an outline of the spiritual path by integrating different wisdom traditions, and he dives into the stages and steps along the way. So he not only gives a structure for healing, but also practical tools for revealing and resting in the whole sacred nature of our being. Plus, there will be a two-hour live online event with Dale on Thursday, January 11th, 2024, for everyone who registers. So please visit livingdying.org to learn more about the Practical Guide to Freedom course. Now, on to this week's episode. Today, I would like to talk about emotional freedom, working with emotions. And for almost everybody on the spiritual path, certainly for me and probably for you, emotions, difficult emotions, strong emotions, intense emotions are one of the main, if not the main thing that makes it difficult to practice, that throws us off our practice schedule. Different people certainly have different emotional patterns. And I was beginning to notice uh, the following. I'm of a certain age, and almost every night I wake up in the middle of the night and I have to go to the bathroom. I notice that when I wake up, the mind jumps in and starts thinking about something. Now, I have a strong enough practice that if I'm really paying attention, I can stop the mind and stagger to the bathroom without thinking and stagger back to bed and fall back to sleep. But often, 
the mind gets the upper hand and it starts thinking. And what I've noticed is that in this really half-awake state, what the mind does is start thinking about the thing that bothers it the most, the emotion that is the one. It's like emotion number one, if you will. So like if you're at a longer meditation retreat, you might notice that there's, as, as the mind calms down, distracted mind begins to calm down, that occasionally thoughts are still coming. And very often there's like thought number one and thought number two. Maybe thought number one is about money and thought number two is about sex, or maybe thought number one is about sex and thought number two is about money. But generally it's something like that, or maybe a bad relationship. But somehow there's this repetitive thing that the personality structure, the mind is holding on to wanting to think about something. Learning in a very skillful way to be with emotions, to not get lost in emotions, to see that emotions are emotion, moving energy. Emotions are experienced in the body. Learning to do this is incredibly useful on our spiritual path. And it's something we're going to go into in some depth today. So first of all, it's my experience that emotions almost always happen in layers. And we can use emotion to dive into a deep part of ourselves, into beyond emotion, if you will. But here are the way that emotions are typically layered. The first emotion that often arises is irritation, frustration, anger. Something's bothering you. It's not conforming to what you would like. So I'd like it better if we're like this, more of this, less of that. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And if you really pay attention to that, if you really are able to be with the emotion, and we'll talk about ways of doing that in just a few minutes here, then very often you'll find that underneath this frustration or anger is a sense of hurt, a sense of sadness, that I'm really angry about something, but underneath that, I'm more deeply, I'm sad that my life is this way. And if you really can sit with the sadness, not get lost in it, not push it away, but really be with the sadness, then underneath that, you'll almost always find there's fear. There's fear that my life is going to stay this way. It scares me that such and such is happening. And if you really can stay with the fear, you'll notice that you probably have some sense of uh, that you're sorry for how you've done things to create this pattern in your life. And underneath that, finally, is love, the ability to forgive yourself uh, or forgive other people. So anger, frustration, going to sadness, going to fear, going to a feeling of understanding and empathy to a feeling of love and forgiveness. You might not always go through all of those stages, but it's very useful in the sense of seeing what can happen next. For instance, if you're really caught in sadness, say, if you really sit with it and sit with it, it will reveal there's a deeper way to be with yourself, a deeper way to be present in your body. And under the sadness, this fear begins to arise. So let's now talk about ways to do that. The first way, the obvious way, is the way of mindfulness no struggle, being with what the sensations feel like. 
Can you be with a sensation without getting lost in the story about why you are feeling the sensation? Can you feel anger without feeling I'm angry at that person because she did this or didn't do that? But here's what it feels like to me to be angry right now. In the Oakland Public School District, they were teaching mindfulness to children. And they asked one boy, the reporter came, they were making a a story about this mindfulness program. They asked this boy in, I think, second grade, what does mindfulness mean to you? And he says, it means not hitting somebody in the mouth when I feel like it. (laughs) Okay. He was beginning to have enough mindfulness that when anger arose, he could not immediately get caught up in the anger. Much of the time, most people are lost in a state of reactivity, of being not centered, of not questioning our automatic identifications with our reactions, our emotional reactions. So with attention, with being centered, we move from being reactive to a place where we can be with an emotion without either automatically pushing it away or automatically getting lost in it. Once again, emotions arise. There are three ways to relate to them. Pushing them away, I don't want to feel that. I'm going to get busy. I'm going to distract myself or I'm going to get lost in that. Oh, my God, I am the emotion. The third possibility is being present for the emotion. For instance, in English, we say, I am afraid. Whereas in Spanish, we say, yo tengo miedo, I have fear. In Tibetan, they say fear is here. So that through awareness, through embodied mindfulness, we're beginning to create some space between the emotion and who is observing the emotion. We're not automatically reacting. Automatic mind always interprets the present in light of past conditioning. So that when we're lost in emotion, it's almost always some childhood experience that's going on. That there's this part of you that was angry when you were two years old or four years old. And that voice, that contraction, that place in the energy body is now reacting in the present. But we're really in the past at that time. And as much as we're lost in a way, it it prevents being able to heal and be fully present. One of the voices that makes it most difficult to be with emotions is the superego, the inner critic, or more accurately, the inner judge, jury, and executioner that is, is judging how we're doing all the time. And it's very difficult to not identify with the emotions of guilt and shame that arise. And I have noticed that even being at a long meditation retreat, and my mind is really still And when a thought does arise, I think just thinking that's a thought, it's just a thought that comes and goes. But when the voice of the superego arises and says, Dale, you should try a little harder. You're not trying hard enough. You're not really a very good meditator, even though you think you are, that I buy into that voice. It's the voice of survival. Learning to be present for the inner critic. Learning to hear that voice is just another thought, takes a great deal of practice. As we can more and more be with our emotions in a sense of being centered, not being thrown off-centered, embodied mindfulness, the second stage of working with emotions begins to arise, and that's using compassion. 
There's a, a wonderful story and a wonderful, wonderful book called The Hundred Thousand Songs of Milarepa, who was one of the greatest Tibetan saints, a wonderful teacher of non-duality. He has all these songs about non-duality. He was a guy who had killed a bunch of people in his youth because his relatives had stolen his property from him and his mother after his father died. And he was trying to find a teacher who could help him be enlightened, even though he had killed people. And he finally found Marpa, the translator, who taught him non-duality. Naropa was off in a cave meditating, and these demons came, all these difficult emotions. And the first thing as he did, he got angry at them, told them to get out, and they didn't go away. And he tried to teach them the Dharma, and they didn't listen. And he tried to avoid them, and he couldn't do it. But finally, what he did was he had compassion. He had compassion for the demons, and they dissolved. Okay, so when we're feeling a difficult emotion, can we use it? to awaken our genuine caring for other people who are just like us and are finding themselves in pain. So there you are, you're caught in fear, you're caught in guilt, you're caught in anxiety, you're caught in shame, you're caught in anger. Can you realize that so many other people, and even people who are not practicing the Dharma, are caught in those emotions? And you breathe in all the suffering. It's like the inspiration to do a moment or three of Tonglen, where you breathe the suffering of that emotion, not just for you, but for all beings, into your heart, into your heart of hearts. And you breathe out the antidote, whatever the antidote is to fear, the antidote to shame, to all beings. We're, we're taught from, from childhood there's something wrong with us. And we, we cultivate a sense of trying to improve ourselves. And we're hard on ourselves because we're not doing it well enough. And what we're talking about here is we're beginning to practice for everybody. Everybody's caught in that predicament. The slogan in Tibetan Buddhism is treating poisonous medicine. Okay, we're, we're taking in the poison of the emotion and creating medicine for all beings. In, in 2009, I had a pretty, pretty good chunk of savings of money. And I had most of it invested very wisely with Bernard Madoff. At least I thought it was wisely at the time. I had been making a good 12 to 14% every year for about 13 years. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call from a very dear friend of mine saying, all your money is gone. Boom. In, in one phone call, I went from being comfortable to being afraid that I was going to be homeless how was I going to take care of my child? I'd been a yogi all of my life. I hadn't really been very good at making money. All this fear arose. I started saying my mantra. I did yoga. I meditated. I did all of these things. And it really didn't cut through the fear. I was having a hard time sleeping. It was the middle of the winter. I could not get warm at night, even with two comforters on. And finally, what it came to me to do was to start doing compassion practice, to do Tonglen practice, both for the part of me that was so frightened by this, but also for all the other people who had just lost all their money with Madoff. There were people that committed suicide. A number of people committed suicide 
And there were people that were extremely angry at Bernie Madoff. I wasn't angry at him. I knew the guy was obviously not well. But it was the compassion that brought me back to not being overwhelmed by what it is that was going on. Can you have compassion for the place where you are lost in the most difficult emotion? Can you have compassion for that place that the mind goes when you wake up in the middle of the night? That place is probably showing you where you're most caught, at least right now. What is the place that's grabbing on? What's, what's down there in the subconscious mind that needs to be expressed? Can you then begin to have compassion for that part of yourself? And even beyond that, can you use that as a gateway to having compassion for all the people on the planet who are suffering in roughly approximately the same way that you are? Which brings us then to the third possibility, and that's the possibility of Tantra. And in Tantra, they say very clearly that all emotions are just awakened energy. They're not good or bad. Every emotion has a job. Every emotion has a healing message. What we're doing in Tantra is turning obstacles into practice, turning obstacles into presence. We're not trying to mindful them away. We're not trying to compassion them. We're not trying to transform them through compassion. We're realizing that the emotion is not even an obstacle. It's instantaneously transmuted into the path. And we're receiving the emotion as grace. We liberate emotions immediately by seeing their empty nature. It's just energy itself. There's a woman in the East Bay here in, in Northern California, Carla McLaren. She's got a book called, I think, Embracing Anxiety or something. And she talks about working with emotions in the way that the ancient tantric Tibetans and Hindus talk about working with emotions in a very psychologically sophisticated way. She says things like, emotions help us to understand what is happening and help us have meaning for each experience. Anxiety helps us plan for the future. Anger helps us meet our life situations directly to set a boundary and then take appropriate action. Anger helps us to see what we value. Sadness tells us what we need to let go of. Shame watches out for you and makes sure your behavior is on track. You can't have empathy for other people without shame. And she said one time she felt she really needed to let go of something. She was holding on to something. She couldn't tell what it was. So she cultivated sadness. She felt more sadness. She tried to feel sadness so she could feel what it was she need to, needed to let go of. So in this, in this theory of Tantra, there aren't negative and positive emotions. They're all healing messages. It's all an expression of the sacred feminine. And we do this dance that we call the tantric three-step. The first step, embodied mindfulness, let go of the trigger, let go of the story about the trigger. What does it feel like in the body? Mindfulness of emotion in the body. Second step, having compassion, using the suffering that we've been feeling as an inspiration to open our hearts to all being, that all other beings are suffering the same way that we are. Turning poison into medicine is the slogan. And then the third step then 
is the tantric step of seeing that emotions are sacred. They're sacred awake energy. Emotions are just pure energy, as is all experience. And in fact, Maharaji, who seemed to be a totally enlightened being, he would get very sad. He would weep. He would get angry at people, not because he was lost in anger, but because in that moment, the person was so stubborn, they needed his anger to move on to the next step. There's there's a complete difference. There's a very crucial difference between conscious anger and being lost in anger, conscious sadness and being lost in sadness. There were two stories where Maharaji heard that a close devotee of his had died. And in one case, he laughed and he laughed. And in the other case, he wept and he wept. Nobody knows why he laughed in one case and cried in the other case. But that was his expression of grief, that somebody that he loved died. And one time there was sadness, one time there was joy. Can we see this trajectory of embodied mindfulness, treating poison as medicine with compassion, and then seeing the sacred nature of all emotion? Okay, well, why don't we do the, why don't we do the meditation and then we can have a discussion about this. So find a comfortable sitting position or lie down if you want, eyes open or closed, whatever is comfortable. And begin to pay attention to your breath. Just being with the natural breath, in-breath, out-breath, space between in-breath and out-breath, space between out-breath and in-breath. And as you settle in then, remember with clarity an event in the past that brought difficult emotions, a situation that has strong emotion for you, sadness, anger, shame, fear, whatever. Recall the situation as fully as you can what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like. Stick with the feelings. If you get too lost in it, you can come back to your breath. But begin to notice what bodily sensations are arising as you remember this situation. What does this do to your breath? You start breathing in a shallow way. What's going on in your jaw? Is there a lump in your throat? And once again, coming to the place where the strongest emotions are predominating, being aware of them, and feeling that it's okay to be with the sensations just the way they are. Letting go of the story, letting go of the scenario in your mind, but being with these sensations. Do the sensations begin to change? Are they changing moment to moment as you're more clearly with them? 
It may be a mixture of emotions. There may be grief mixed with fear, mixed with anger. Are you resisting painful sensations? Pushing them away or are you getting lost in them? Again and again, a clear, centered, embodied mindfulness in relationship to these sensations. Once again, if it's too overwhelming, you can come back to your breath for a little bit. But then please come back to the sensations in the body. They're changing nature. And now we're going to bring in the heart. changing poison into medicine. Can you begin to breathe the suffering that you're feeling and the suffering that you imagine other people in the same, roughly the same situation as you are feeling, breathing this collective suffering into your heart with compassion, focusing on compassion and breathing out the antidote to the suffering Strength, healing, love, stability, whatever is needed. Breathing that out with loving kindness, focusing on compassion as you breathe in, focusing on loving kindness as you breathe out. So that we're using difficult emotion as an inspiration to open the heart and feel compassion for ourselves and for other beings. The heart becoming more and more spacious. Even though the painful sensations might continue, they're now continuing in a much, much larger container, the boundless sky-like nature of the heart itself. Spacious heart, connected heart, compassionate heart, transmuting poison into medicine, medicine for all beings. Again and again, resting in the spaciousness rather than being lost in the sensations. And as we more and more trust this spacious nature of heart, we see that the emotions themselves, the sensations, are just pure awakened energy. The sacred feminine arising, the mother moment to moment to moment. A beautiful face, a difficult face, but a sacred face. Each moment is grace. Emotions as the gateway to resting 
in receiving grace moment to moment to moment. Not having to fix, not having to improve. Resting in grace. And then coming back to embodiment, coming back to being centered, breathing in and out. Possibly the painful sensations have been transmuted to something else. Maybe they are still there, but having a different relationship with them. And then coming back into the room. And realizing that we did there in five or six minutes is something that can be done in five or six seconds. A difficult emotion, a painful emotion, feel the sensations, let go of the story, centered embodied mindfulness, generating compassion for you and others who are lost in emotion spacious heart, revealing the sacred nature of each experience, including difficult emotion, revealing the grace that is arising, the blessing, the presence inherent in each moment. Are there any remarks or questions about that practice? Well, let's let's think of a concrete example. And the one that keeps coming up for me for some unknown reason, joke, is anger in traffic. Angelus Arians, who used to be on our board, she has died some time ago, said that, that driving is the only time in your life where you're moving toward other people with your arms and your legs open uh, at some high speeds. So you're in this very vulnerable physical situation, right? There you are with your legs spread apart going towards other people at a 20, 40, 60, 80 miles an hour, right? It brings out a lot of emotion. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Somebody's driving in a self, what seems to be a selfish or an unconscious way. Anger arises. And certainly underneath that, there can be some fear that you're going to be hurt. If I pay careful enough attention under the anger, to me, there's a sadness that this is the world that we're living in, that's in between the anger and the fear. That it's, it's sad to me that I'm not connected to that other person, that, I, that his or her behavior is separating me from connection with myself, that I'm alone there with this painful emotion, and that it's sad. It's like, here I am all alone. I'm angry at somebody that I don't even know. Maybe their father is dying and they're on their way to the hospital or something for all I know. But there's this immediate reaction of sad, of, of anger. If you want, you can jump right from anger to fear. But I think for a lot of people, there is that layer in between. And I'm not, this is not something I made up on my own. I've heard this from several different 
schools of working with emotion, that there is this, this layer of sadness underneath. Because anger is, is so separating, it's so hot, it's so immediate, and we're, it's so easy to get lost in it. And it's a sad thing to be that caught in that. And it's a sad thing to be defining this other person as a bad human being because of doing what they're doing. I remember once we had a Living Dying Project Board of Directors meeting a long time ago, and I took the board out to dinner at a vegetarian restaurant in Corte Madera that no longer exists. It was really crowded that night. and We were standing in line to be seated. And in front of us in line was this couple, young people. And it was clear from overhearing their conversation that the, the guy was on a first or second date with this woman who was trying to impress her and saying things about, look what I'm doing, right? And they got up to the front and there was a young hostess who was going to seat them and she was going to put them at a table for two in the middle of the restaurant very crowded. And the guy said, no, I want that booth over there on the side that seats half a dozen people. And she said, I'm sorry, but we can't do that. It's very crowded tonight. You have to take the table for two in the middle of the room. He said, I come here all the time. I spend a lot of money here. What? This is no way to treat me. And he's getting all upset. And she said, well, I'm really sorry, but I can't do that. And he gets mad at her. He goes, grabs his date and they angrily leave the restaurant and the hostess goes crying into the kitchen. There we are standing at the front of the line and somebody else came up from the kitchen and said, what that guy didn't know is that her father died two days ago. The hostess's father had just died. And he was all mad at her for doing her job. And we really don't know what people are going through. Everybody's fighting a hard battle. I mean, compassion is a mixture of sadness and joy. And to feel compassion for the person who's cutting you off requires feeling some sadness that he or she is suffering to be probably behaving like that, or at least you're suffering because you're angry about it. Dale, I I think you've just proven to me, you you at least have moderate psychic abilities because (laughs) driving in traffic is my trial. It it puts my brain on, it puts me fully exposed. And I love how you put it arms and legs open. And I, I was recently on a, a very, very stressful drive to and, uh, to and from Nevada City on Interstate 80. And that seems to be a particular magnet for nut, nuttiness on the road. And I flared up um, in my usual way. And what I was, as I was unpacking that experience of, so the sadness part is very illuminating to me too. I was, well, where the storyline I built around, of course, it is sad that there are, there's a significant minority of people who are willing to disregard the well-being and safety of others on the road to arrive at their destination five minutes sooner. And I do find it difficult, but worthwhile to work on compassion for the people, all the people on the road who are afflicted with anxiety or whatever it is that make, that's prompting that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think you've, you've just kind of elucidated um, where sadness, and I did feel sadness, that, that there are, despite the fact that the large majority of drivers were just being courteous and calm, it was sad to me that there are people who um, will endanger others. And, and cars are especially fraught for me because I know people die that way. 
thank you for your comments. Uh, it's just something, it'll be an ongoing piece of work for me. I know that. So once again, going through our trajectory here, in mindfulness, we're aware of the emotion. And through awareness, we, we replace it with something wholesome. And then with compassion, we transform it through compassion. But in Tantra, it's instantaneously transmuted. That anger is not inherently good or bad. Anger is the exact same energy that cuts through Manjushri's sword, that cuts through the distinction between ignorance and wisdom. It's the same energy that we create with. But it's a difficult energy because it's so hot and so sudden often that it's very easy to get lost in. So that anger is only is a bad reputation because it's so easy to get lost in, not that it's inherently good or bad. If, if we can harness that energy, it's an incredible energy. Whether we, we transmute it into creativity or it's just it's conscious anger. I mean, there's plenty to be angry about in this world right now. And can we not get lost in the anger, but be angry about what's happening environmentally and politically and socially and, and so many different ways? The vast injustice that we see all around us. I, every, probably most of you know that Daniel Ellsberg died, uh, I believe, yesterday. Uh, I was, I remember being chased down the street by the police, protesting the Vietnam War and having tear gas shot at me. The problem was that back in the 60s, we were lost in anger. We, we called the police pigs, right? And they were the bad guys and we were the good guys. In that dichotomy, we created the next thing. We created Ronald Reagan in the 70s and 80s and everything because it wasn't conscious anger, even though there's a, a just cause. But there was a young, immature, stupid anger in a certain kind of way. And there's going to be a lot of anger in between now and the election. So how much can you and I deal with our sadness and our anger and our fear and our guilt and all the things that are going to come up when we're thinking about Donald Trump and Joe Biden and, and whatever other names are popping up? There's going to be a lot of divisiveness in our country, plenty of opportunity to get lost in emotions. You can do a practice of turning on Fox News and get in a meditative posture on your couch there and watch Fox News and watch the anger come up. Or maybe you love Fox News and you turn on CNN and then you watch your anger, whatever kind of whatever's going to get you going. But it's not too hard to find something on in in the news that is certain to grab you in a, in a certain place. And it's good to finally be outed as a psychic. I'm very happy. <laughs> Working with emotions for me has a lot to do with being in the body and being with a somatic relationship with emotion. That emotion is energy in the body. Emotions are experienced in the body. And as long as we're caught in the story, the narrative. And the story is so compelling. There is so much ignorance in the world. There is so much aggression in the world. There is so much greed in the world. There is so much grasping in the world that it's almost natural to judge and, and get lost in the story. To feel intimately what you're experiencing when you're judging, when you're angry, when you're 
pushing away. You're the one that's suffering. But as long as you're up in your mind, you're not experiencing how you're suffering. The sun is coming out. Uh, Rhonda? Yeah? Manish asks in the chat, I would like to ask this to Rhonda. How do you have faith in God and cultivate love? God is love. When one is going through difficult times and seeing no light at the end of the tunnel. Well, there's so many ways to answer that, of course. For me, the, the, the deeper answer, the one that speaks to me, is that all suffering is, the, is directly the result of this profound illusion, misidentification of who we are. And it, it's, it's a tricky thing because, I mean, I've got a friend right now who is very advanced cancer, somebody I love really a lot. And I'm very often in a situation where people I'm close to have advanced illness because of the nature of the work that I do. And so you say, how can there be a God that allows babies to starve to death? This deeper answer is that God loves us so much that he, she wants us to come back. And that clearly, if we believe there's just one lifetime and that's it, then this whole adventure, this human experiment is not going very well. But if in fact there is this larger picture that we're all on this path of realizing our wholeness, that everybody goes through everything eventually, that I have been the abuser and the abused, I have been the, the, the downtrodden and the oppressor, I have, you know, that all of that stuff is happening. I know it sounds intellectual, but to me, it's kind of the only way out. And there comes a point in spiritual practice where suffering becomes grace, that you want to be free enough that when you feel that you're suffering, something deep in you intuitively knows it's because you're making a mistake, you're missing the mark. In fact, in the Bible, there's a word sin that is some weird translation of something that literally means missing the mark, right? And that when we're missing the mark, we're suffering. We're not remembering who we are. We're not remembering that that, that divine nature is fundamentally who we are. I've been meditating for five decades. I still am neurotic. I still get caught in getting irritated in traffic. Not in a conscious way, but like, oh, kind of way sometimes. And it comes and goes very quickly. I don't get lost in it too long. So I, I, I don't have a very satisfying answer that doesn't involve a long, deep dive into the nature of reality, right? That suffering sucks and that, that there are so many people who don't have a way out. They, they don't. We had a client at the dying center, a young kid who had been, uh, he was suicidal. He'd commit, attempted suicide a number of times. 
he was a heroin addict and he had incredibly brittle diabetes. His diabetes, his blood sugar bounced between 12 and 900, if you know what that means. I mean, like his emotions were completely all over the place. And he had never done any spiritual practice. He never had, had done any psychotherapeutic practice. And he was completely lost in the suffering. And I thought, here's a guy, maybe he should die. Maybe he should get out of this life, reshuffle the cards, get a new body, get a new personality and start over again. He came to the dying center because nobody else wanted him. He couldn't be in the hospital. And we had loving people there feeding him cooking healthy food and feeding them. And he, he started getting better. He started wanting to be alive. And even Ricky, even this guy who was so seemingly in this hopeless situation, he turned it around. So, you know, you read about Indian train wrecks and typhoons and big boats uh, sinking with a lot of refugee on them, refugees on them and, just imagine, imagine being on that Indian train. It turns out that almost all the people that died were in the really cheap cars where they were standing up, right? Not in the first class cars. And you're, you're in this train that's going pretty fast. It was an express train. And all of a sudden, the, the, the tra you're, you're just flying through the air with all these other bodies. It's unimaginable. So very poor answer, but that's the best I can do. I'm sorry. Thank you so much, Ramdev. I appreciate your answer. It uh, gave me a lot of reflections. You're welcome, Anish. Okay. Uh, well, I, I just want to say how much I appreciate the talk today. It, it, it just felt good and it was meaningful and useful. Um, the question I have actually comes from two weeks ago, believe it or not. Something you said, and you've said it a hundred times, but when you said it, it really... I saw it differently and I wanted to ask you about it, which is a simple sentence that Maharaji said, all you have to do is just love God. Uh -huh. I find that extremely abstract. <laughs> I mean, really, when I think about it, it's like, what's it mean to you? I mean, I love God. Do you love Donald Trump? I can. Okay. Do 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 you love him all the time? If I drop into just behind all of his stuff and his personality, just to his simple true nature, I can. Yeah. Okay. Well then, I mean, I don't know what's complicated about it. it I mean, to me. Somebody asked Maharaji, what's the best form in which to love God? Is Ram or Krishna or Shiva or whatever? He said, the best form is every form. Not just the, not just the pictures on your altar, but the people in your... So basically saying, just rest in love. I mean, okay. he's, he's talking about the path of either, you could say it's the path of devotion, tantric devotion, that whatever you're experiencing, whether it's an emotion or a political situation or a person that you're resting in love and there's it you're resting in the heart chakra love is not an emotion 
Love is a state of being. All you've got to do is rest in that state of openness. And to be resting in your heart, you also have to have, you have to be grounded and centered in the first three chakras, humming along, the heart's open. And then if you can just rest in your heart, the tantric nature of things is going to be revealed in a pretty natural way. So it's a, it's a simple sentence, but it's the work of a lifetime to be working with the places where this situation and that person you see is other than God. That that's something that needs to that closes my heart. That thing I was saying in the beginning today, when you wake up in the middle of the night, where does your mind go? What does it start worrying about? What do you worry about? And that's the place where you're not loving God. Can you begin to then work with that place in yourself? Have compassion for that place. Yeah. I I, I get it. You're speaking about God as, as it's almost like being love. Yeah, it's exactly like being love. It's okay. not like being love. It is being it's like love God, like as though God were a, you know, it just was a little confusing, but I'm with you because that's really my sense is just to tap into the part of me that, that really just the deepest part, I believe, just exists in a space that radiates love. Okay. So that, yeah. Okay. So I wrote a newsletter article once called The Beloved Can Only Be Everything. So either God is everything or God isn't God, right? I mean, so loving God is loving everything. It's being love. It's not, it's not God up in the, on the altar, God up in heaven, ideal God. It's, it's, it's uh, non-ideal God. It's everything. That's the clarity that I, I, was, I was looking for. Thanks. You're very welcome. Uh, Rhonda? Yes. Anne uh, asks in the chat, uh, when you said doubt, I felt something deep that has been with me all my life. Could you speak more about doubt? How it, <laughs> it is a guide, how it is a sensation and quality to enter and learn from? Okay. I often laugh at people asking me a question, not because I'm laughing at you, but I'm laughing at the fact that people think I know something. It just seems so remarkable to me. It's like, why would anybody ask me anything? It's like, it just seems so bizarre. But anyway, okay. So there's there's big doubt and there's little doubt. There's doubt that uh, the Giants are going to win today. There's doubt that it's going to be a sunny day today. But there's this big doubt that we're whole, right? That we have all this conditioning from childhood saying, you're messed up. You've got to try harder. The natural emotions that are rising in you show that you're not a good human being. You've got to fix that. You've got to try harder. And there's all this conditioning and uh, that is based on this, this doubt that we've uh, digested from our parents usually and from the larger world also. This doubt that we are whole, that we're we're a face of God, we're God's child, that we're we we have this natural love with a capital L and a compassion with a capital C. We doubt that. And the spiritual path is largely about dealing with the, the big doubt, or in Buddhism, I think it's called the great doubt. 
the great doubt about who you are, that it's all about dealing with that doubt and having glimpses and increasingly frequent and deeper glimpses that that doubt is an illusion or maybe another way of saying it, that 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 thing you're doubting is not really true, that you are whole even when you're lost in an ocean, that there's nothing you can do to fundamentally separate you from your true nature, that we're whole already, uh, that there's this wonderful poem by Hafiz where he says, in the eyes of your beloved, everything you ever do, think, or say in his eyes are always, always beautiful. Everything. But we doubt that. We, we try to cover those things up. I mean, imagine that you had a device that was attached to your brain that, 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 that broadcast every thought into the world, right? You're walking down the street and you think, how, how could the person wear that outfit today? Or look at the way they're walking, how, how they're not in their body hardly at all. Or look at how arrogant that person is, right? And all this stuff is being projected outward. You'd be in a lot of big trouble, right? <laughs> so uh, we doubt because we, we have this voice going on a lot of the time. And yet, it can't separate us. Even that doubt can't separate us. So one way of talking about spiritual practice is, is dissolving the great doubt through compassion, through love, through mindfulness. It's, it's the job of a lifetime. Thank you all very much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.